Hey friends, welcome to a unique episode of Adventures in Theology. For many of you, maybe you don't even know this, that I actually pastor a church in San Diego, a church called New Break Church, the Ocean Beach campus. And I wanted to do something unique today and share with you a recent sermon I preached. Um, It's part one of a series we're doing called Thriving in Babylon. And I thought it was such a great sermon and that I wanted to share it here. Now, I can't guarantee that I will always share uh, the sermons to this podcast, but I wanted to do it here. But if you did like this, do me a favor. Please do reach out and say, hey, I want to hear more of this. But without further ado, here's my sermon from part one of Thriving in Babylon. I spy with my little eye something blue. (laughs) Yeah, and usually that's like the opening line of hanging out with my two-and-a-half-year-old where we're reading books before bedtime. And I love this game. He's really into this right now. And when you hear a two-and-a-half-year-old say that phrase, I spy with my little eye, it's just adorable, and how can you say no? And I like it too because most of the books we're reading have something to do with Jesus. So we're either talking about Jesus or, you know, Noah and the Ark or just some cute things on the page. Uh, but it's fun because Cairo, that's my son, he, he's really into finding the tricky ones. In fact, he, wants, he doesn't want me to point out the giant elephant on the page. He wants me to find the tiny little butterfly. So I'm looking at the page. I'm like, okay, I spy with my little eye a little tiny purple butterfly. And he's looking for it, looking for it. He's scanning. He's like, he looks at me and says, tricky one. And he likes it. He wants the tricky one. And eventually he finds it. And he's so proud of himself. There's a reward in finding that which was hard to find on the page. Now, from a data perspective, what I like about this game too is I've read this book a hundred times with Cairo, sometimes a hundred times in one night, embellishing the point a little bit, but you get what I'm saying. And, and what's fun is like, I've looked at this page a hundred times And for the first time right now, I'm seeing something on the page I never saw before. It's a good feeling to find something like, wow, I never knew that was there. And of course, the picture never changed. It was printed like however many years ago in that published book. But my perspective of it changed as I looked and saw something I didn't see before. Now, I Spy is not just a fun little children's game. I feel like there's a big parallel in what we can be talking about this entire series, but especially for today, that we need to play I Spy with my little eye to see God's hand and his faithfulness in our world. Otherwise, we're looking at a picture that will be very chaotic and might seem broken altogether and completely in despair. In fact, I I think it doesn't take many conversations to know that we we feel this sense of despair around us right now. Uh, I don't know if you really noticed, but the moral landscape of our culture has shifted a lot over to past few years. But to put it into a broader perspective, the past 300 years has been known as the rise of secularism. And uh, that about 300 years ago, there was a prediction from a French philosopher who said, in 100 years, a Bible will just be an antique and won't even exist other than for people to visit in a museum. Well, he was wrong, uh, and he always will be wrong. But the point is, for the past 300 years, this isn't completely novel in that only the past 10 years have been like waging a war against God in our society. No, no, no. 300 years, the Western world has been experiencing a seismic shift. Now, what is secularism? Which is so hard for me to say for whatever reason, that word. It doesn't roll off the tongue very well. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying. What is secularism? Secularism is a divide between uh, society and God. The whole goal of secularism is to say, you can live and probably ought to live without God. You can thrive apart from God. You don't need God. 
Now, at first, secularism, when it was first taking root, uh, pulled up a little bit more covert in the sense that God was more optional, but not as hostile toward God. Now it's a little bit different, if you know what I mean. What some people have noticed, and they compare it to this, and I think this is on point, they've referred to it as secularism is providing a reverse exorcism. See, with an, an exorcism, an exorcism expels the presence of evil. But what secularism is doing is going to the places where God is and trying to expel him or his influence which I know you can't really expel God, but you get what I'm saying. Like basically secularism wants to go to all the places where God has taken root or has influence and move God further to the margins of society until he's altogether obsolete or even extinct from our society. And that's why uh, we've even seen a replacement where back, this was probably a long time ago now, but kids' heroes used to be saints. And now we've replaced saints with celebrities most of the idols we look up to, the people we look up to, are people that, well, aren't really good moral examples and all of that. It just, it's part of this giant picture of what we've seen with the moral landscape really shift and change. Now, if you didn't know this, San Diego is only 4% churched, 4%. So by the way, whenever you see like, <laughs> there shouldn't be any competition between churches in San Diego. We should all be on the same team. Partly why? Because if every church got filled, you would still have plenty of space. And so it's not a territorial war. It shouldn't be for many reasons. But <laughs> San Diego is only 4% church. So that means four out of 100 people say by claim, not even by life practice necessarily, that being part of a church community matters. Get that. And now we've seen this also. I've talked to enough of you of parents, and I, I am a, a dad. I mean, only of a toddler, a two-and-a-half-year-old, so it's not the same at the moment for me. But I have nieces and nephews who are in this where the curriculum has school, in schools has changed drastically to where there is things being taught in uh, mainstream public schools that are just, uh, the subject matter is, it's, it's quite shocking of what's being taught. And not only the subject matter, but the positions on that subject matter is uh, surprising and shocking. And sometimes as Christians, as Christ followers, it's like, wait, that's not okay. And not only as Christ followers, I have found enough commonality with people who aren't even Christ followers who see what's being taught, right? but that's just too far. Too far, too soon, too much. We see it, we feel it. And so I don't think I have to build up the case anymore that there is this sense that we feel like some despair. And we, we ask ourselves, how do I find hope when all seems lost? And as a pastor, I don't have to convince people too much of the problem. We quickly get to the feeling of being like, I have to convince people to not give up hope. And I can come in today with stats. And I actually did a lot of research this past week on a lot of stats on the rise, <clears throat> sorry, the decline of Christianity in America, but also the rise of Christianity in like Islamic uh, countries, for example. Christianity's on the rise. Pretty shocking if you know what that means. <laughs> and Christianity's on the rise in China. Christianity's on the rise in these very hostile regions. And I can give you stats on the decline of Christianity in America, but here's what I found so frustrating about stats. They have a wide array of like assessment. There's not like a consistent stat on these matters. And I bring that to your attention uh, for a lot of reasons, but part of the reason too is I want you to know that any stat you look up, stats are just predictions. They're not prophecies. Why is that important? Stats tell you what a current reality is, but they don't get to decide the future. Stats don't get to write the story. 
And that's important for us today because we need to understand as God's people, as people who seek God, that we actually have a very, uh, we live in a very pivotal time. And a lot of people that know what they're talking about when they study history and have seen what happens here is we're at a a pivotal point where there's almost going to be a fork in the road to see what happens next. And if you're like me, you get excited about that. Now, we're going to start a new sermon series today called Thriving in Babylon, And I'm excited for this because if you know your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Daniel for the next six weeks in the book of Daniel. And uh, uh, Daniel, you get to see him and his friends face situations and circumstances that hopefully we can draw some parallels to. Yeah, granted, there's a lot of differences, but there's some parallels. And God's word is important like that. There's always going to be a sense where we can glean from God's word on this. But we call it thriving in Babylon very intentionally because Babylon wasn't just some ancient empire. Yes, Babylon was an ancient empire at one point in time, uh, a long time ago. But the Bible continues in the New Testament to use the word Babylon as like a code word of the prevailing culture that continues to combat against God. It's the invisible society that always is waging war against God. So Babylon has been real then, and Babylon is real in the New Testament. Babylon has been real all throughout history. Babylon's going to prevail until Jesus, not prevail, sorry. Babylon's going to continue until Jesus returns, in a sense. So I say all that just to say, hey, when we're talking about thriving in Babylon, we got to be real with the situation we're in. There is a reality in which Babylon is a present um, opponent. <laughs> there is a reality in which we do have to thrive in Babylon, and we're not just making this up to go along with the Bible. So in fact, I do want us to go in the Bible, and I want us to know right from the start that our first thing we want to know in this whole entire sermon series is to trust God's process even when it doesn't make sense. Trust God's process even when it doesn't make sense. Because first of all, we know how the story ends, and this is not how the story ends. If you're in the thick of the plot, you're not at the end. Okay, so turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter one, if you have them with you on your phones or <clears throat> your Bible with you. Uh, I hope you get to mark up a few things today. I'll try to tell you a few things I think you should mark up in your Bible. It's really interesting. But before we read this, I think there's a few things we need to set in terms of context of this passage. Okay, so Daniel one, you're jumping into the, the middle of it. I know it's called Daniel chapter one, but a lot of story has happened in the Old Testament I'll give you the 30,000 foot overview. Israel, is a, God's, uh, God's covenant people at this time, was a nation that was dedicated, uh, it was a theocracy. They meant, meant to have a relationship with God that meant that they had a codified law by which as a nation, they, uh, God was their king. Like, so if God is their king, then he, there's a law in which they were supposed to abide by to experience the blessing of God for them. Now, if they didn't obey God, well, God said, okay, don't worry. I'm not abandoning you necessarily. The point is, though, that there's going to be repercussions. I'm going to make an example out of you uh, as a holy people, whether in a good way or in a bad way. The choice is yours. Obey and experience my blessing or disobey and experience exile. Now, of course, they had a few, well, they started out with not the best king. They started out with a king named Saul, who he looked the part. He liked a good leader. He had charisma. He was tall, strong, and all that. You know, first of all, tall, much taller than me, probably, because I, I didn't really get that part. So that wasn't really nice in my favor. Uh, thanks, God. I've been this height since sixth grade. Makes sense of that. Um, yeah, I thought I was going to be six one. Yeah. It wasn't good for my football play. Anyways, uh, <laughs> And so Saul had all the look of a leader, but not the heart of a leader. He had everything except the one thing that mattered most, which was a heart after God. David comes along. David has that. 
David had a lot of things working against him, but he had heart for God. Now, that was the climax of like Israel's golden age. Ever since then, all the kings went downhill from there. Why? Because they deviated from God over and over again. Eventually, it got so bad that the kingdom became divided and the people of God became so like the nations around them that you couldn't tell the difference. Their morals were the same and you couldn't even tell if they were worshiping a different God than the nations around them. It got bad. So what does God do? He's like, okay, you're going to exile. Just like what we talked about. You knew this was the plan. If you're gonna play it this way, we're gonna go into exile. But you're not just going into exile. You're gonna go into exile into the worst, most brutal nation, most brutal empire the world has ever seen. Yeah, the people that you fear about, that you have nightmares about. The people who put people on, uh, cut off their hands and their feet and their head and put them on a stake and a pole outside their city to make a point. They're coming for you and I'm allowing it. So Daniel chapter one, let's read. <laughs> Daniel, context is important, guys. <laughs> Daniel one, one through seven, because otherwise, watch, this is not gonna make much sense. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, so not a good dude, not obeying God. Uh, so don't name your son Jehoiakim, please. Uh, or Jezebel, don't name your daughter that, okay. <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. He destroyed it, right? And the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. So these were young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction, um, in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, capable of serving in the king's palace. He was going to teach them the Chaldean language, so the Babylonian language, and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of the time, they were going to attend the king. Among them were from the Judites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. There is so much in that text that you could have probably missed in a cursory level read. First of all, I just want you to know that Babylon goes after the young. Babylon goes after the young. Why? The young are impressionable. There's three things that happen in this text and that's such a jiffy that you could have easily missed it. Babylon isolates, indoctrinates, and it has identity alteration. Isolation, they remove them from their homeland. Okay, let's start one of how it went for Daniel and his friends. Indoctrination, Daniel and his friends were now forced to learn the radically dehumanizing ideologies of Babylon. We don't have time to nerd out on it today, but if you want to another time, I'll nerd out with you on how terrible the things that Daniel and his friends would basically learn being in, in that, like, in that kind of school. Yes, they would get to eat from the king's table. Great, you get to eat well. We're gonna feed you, because trust me, we want you to buy into our culture. So we want you to enjoy it in a sense, but man, they are gonna have indoctrination of a way of life and a theology of gods that are so dehumanizing and destructive. And then identity alteration. They were called by names that were no longer theirs. They had Hebrew names. All these Hebrew names, Daniel, um, you know, all this means something about God. Then their names got changed to the names of Babylonian gods. They got named after Babylonian gods. They're not even called their old names anymore. Identity alteration. It looks bleak, doesn't it? But I want you to notice something at the very beginning of this passage. I spy with my little eyes something suspicious. 
I bolded it, so I hope you can see it. But when we first read that passage in passing, it read like defeat. But God's up to something in this passage. Daniel 1, 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Wait a second. If you know what happens in the ancient world and how they viewed warfare and all this, this is how they viewed it. When two nations would go to war against each other, let's say it's Egypt and Babylon, mortal combat, who's going to win? Like, they didn't just view it on the people battling each other with swords and spears. It was a parallel reality to what was happening in the heavens. What's that mean? Their gods were going to war. Whoever's gods were stronger, it would reflect down below on earth. What happened above happened below. So in their theological paradigm, to see what happens on our level of things was to say what already happened in the reality of the heavens. That's why it's so important that at the very beginning of Daniel, Daniel frames to us the reality so they don't miss the truth of this. God, (laughs) Yahweh, the God of Israel, did not lose a war to the Babylonian gods. God's saying, I didn't lose. This isn't my war. This is my will. This is not my weakness. This is my will. That's key because if he did not phrase it that the Lord delivered delivered his people over, then it could have been viewed that, wait a second, our God's not as strong as we thought he is. No, this is not a mark against the strength of God. This is God saying, I am doing this myself. I'm sending them here. And even more than that, all these little things in the text are giving us subliminal and important messages here. The the relics of the temple, which symbolize the presence of God, are taken into Babylon. What is essentially being said here is God is saying, yes, you are going to exile, but I'm going with you. My purpose for you is not through. We are taking a detour and we're gonna go into the heart of the empire and there we will recapture the plot of the story because you lost it. We're gonna go in there together. I love this as so encouraging because as a timeless truth, God never abandons his master plan of redemption. God will always take the means necessary to create the necessary detours to get his people back on track with their purpose and plan. When we lose the plot of the story, exile happens, but exile is not God forsaking us. It's God taking us on a a, a journey to see something. A lot of things happen inward when we get uncomfortable. Sometimes God has to make us uncomfortable so we take a little inventory, a little look inside, a little introspection. Exile, if we let it, brings out the best of us. That's why, uh, you know, I find it so troubling when I find on social media Christians uh, saying something to the effect of, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, so come Lord Jesus. Hey, I'm all for the come Lord Jesus prayer, Maranatha. That's in scripture. I'm for it. I do want Jesus to return. I know he will on his own timing. He says soon. Soon means a lot of things. A little quicker, please. No, no, but no, I get it. Okay, but I can't stand when we use that phrase as an idiom of saying, I give up, we can't make a difference. I quit. We will not be a church that throws in the towel like that. That's not the heart of God's people. Can I just say like American Christianity has gone weak sauce. It's weak. I am not impressed. And this is not this just only this past generation. It's not the generation before. And I'm not blame shifting just to one, one older or two older. This is American Christianity has been weak for a long time. I'm just going to call that out in this 
okay? And so part of the issue is we aren't good at playing I spy with my little eye and seeing God's hand of faithfulness in something. We just give up and go into despair and not see that God's in it. Daniel and his friends had to see that or else they would have failed right away and probably just assimilated. Because with the privileges they got to go be in the king's court, they could have just assimilated and gave in. All right, we'll just adopt their theology, their worship, their practices. Why not? We're gonna eat at the king's court. We're gonna live a good, comfy life. Daniel and his friends didn't have it that bad as those who went in captivity with them. But they made a choice. And as you'll see in the coming weeks, but why? Because they saw exile through the, uh, the eyes of God's master plan. Now, many of us are familiar with this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, we, we see this on coffee mugs, on blankets, on pillows, on tattoos. It's on my ankle. It's not my ankle. Uh, <laughs> um, hey, but if you have it as a tattoo, I'm not marking you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denigrating you, okay? Uh, it's in Hobby Lobby everywhere. Half of their Bible section of decorations are Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm not bashing on it, okay? What I'm trying to say, though, is often we don't even know how powerful that verse is. Because this is one of those times when you take this verse out of context, you're actually diluting it. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a passage for exiles. This is a passage for those whose life isn't going well. In fact, I want to show you the whole context of Jeremiah 29, 11 before we get there. Because this passage, I think, uh, I want to give the text back to you so now whenever you read Jeremiah 29, 11, you never read it the same again. Because here's what you need to know about this. And if you have your physical Bible with you or whatever, like I, I would love for you to mark next to Jeremiah chapter 29 that like see Daniel chapter one. Here's why. If you are Daniel and his friends, they have this word on their heart. They were influenced by Jeremiah. This is a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Literally, you can read it for yourself. That's the cool thing. You don't even have to like trust but verify. Like I'm telling you this right now. It's in the text. Check it for yourself. So this would be written to the exiles in Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar. And starting in verse four, this is what God says. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Pause there. God is reminding them who's really in charge. The Lord of armies. Now, in the text that literally is the Lord of hosts, which he's not just talking about armies as in human armies. This is the Lord who has angel armies. And guess what? You can't make up enough Babylonian gods that outnumber the legions of angels that God has. God's doing a boss move here, if I can say it like that, when he's putting in things in context to say, I'm in control of who's in control. I am not weak. I don't lack strength. I don't lack armies. Ready to hear what I have to say? I love, by the way, marking every time I see the Lord of armies in my Bible. It's just a fun one to just always know how often God says that to remind his people of his strength and his sovereignty. So he says this to all the exiles I deported. Who? That he deported. Who did it? God did. From Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's my instruction. Verse five, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. We'll talk about that. And when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. 
don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I've not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration, which he's saying right there. They're saying, everything's good. God's not, nothing's wrong. We haven't done anything wrong. God's like, no, you have done something wrong. Exile's not for nothing. Return to me. Get back on track. Verse 10. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Here's verse 11 in context. For I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being and not for your disaster, to give you a future and hope. I love verses 12 and 13. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. If I had to summarize what is being said in that passage, God's instruction to the exiles is this. Choose to engage rather than retreat. Choose to engage rather than retreat. Build houses, plant gardens, settle down. At the risk of sounding like I'm targeting, like, don't move away. <laughs> You're in Babylon. Don't try to find your, you know, the better place. Like, I know some people, and no one in this room, so I can say this in full confidence, like, oh, we just want to move to uh, Idaho or whatever, you know. Like, you have this little promised land idea in your mind. Move away, you know, oh, where, where, where more Christians are. Okay, you think that's the play? All right. That's fine. I, I, if, if God calls you to that, that's different. I'm not going to get in the way of that. But sometimes what goes on my mind is when God's people find themselves in exile, the instruction is to settle in. Build houses, plant gardens. Why? Because clearly they had a view that although they were into exile, that God had gone with them. They weren't truly alone in this. That God was calling them to stay, but also to thrive. See, God's like, I got you. Follow me still. Re recapture the plot of the story and watch what happens. They were called to be faithful, by, but not means of hiding, but of showing Babylon by word and deed who the real true God is. And so uh, I find that so encouraging for us. And so what we see too is it's not just about choosing to engage. It's about choosing to engage with godly wisdom and courage. Now, see what happens here, because I spy with my little eye a conundrum. It says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Okay, I don't know about you, but I would have been cool if that said, like, in revolt against Babylon, like, train up your kids in warfare, like little 300 soldiers, you know, like the Spartans, like, get ready to go. And when you do increase and multiply, get ready to overthrow them, become more militant. That's what I thought it would say. It doesn't say that. And I think too often I, I see Christians who, again, they mean well, they think the solution is that we need to become more militant. I don't think that's the solution if this is somehow a pattern of how God allows us to thrive in a sort of Babylon. I don't think that's the solution. I'll get to the solution in a second, but I do see that he says to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. I mean, our play is to be faithful to God and for our city. What if you tried this as one little practical tip? What if instead of complaining about the city, you converted your complaints into prayers? It's easy to complain, it's hard to pray. And I don't mean the kind of prayers that are like prayers of judgment. God, like, uh, smite down that political leader and all that. <laughs> hey, I feel you, I, I get it, I get it. What if it's prayers of restoration and revival instead? Because here's what I know to be true. When you pray for your city, you'll likely end up doing something because God doesn't receive our prayers without empowering us to become our prayers. 
Like, if you pray for something, watch how God involves you in the answer. Watch how you will become your prayers. It's exciting. And you'll start to have a heart for your city. And you'll start to see that God has a heart for cities. God loves cities. He doesn't need us all to move away to some farmland in the middle of nowhere. That's not our play. God's play is I'm for the cities. I just need my people to be for me and within those cities. Of course, the solution is not to assimilate. Let's not be confused here. This is not about like a moral compromise. As we see in the book of Daniel, that hasn't happened. Daniel and his friends don't compromise. But they find this weird, they tether the line and being faithful to God, but also for their city. I love that. I love what happens there. And that's why for some of us today, I want you to know this with all of your heart, that you were born for this moment in time that you're in. If you believe in sovereignty of God to at least a little bit of an, like a bit, then please believe in this part of God's sovereignty. It's not a mistake that you were born in this time and that you are here in 2023. I know it's easy to ask the like icebreaker question, which time period do you wish you lived in and all of that? I wish your answer was this right here, right now. I don't fantasize about doing ministry in any other time. I think this is the most exciting time to do ministry. We are born for such a time as this. But is that our mentality? Because I'll tell you right now, we're not not leading us anywhere near pessimism. That is not our play here. So remember Jeremiah 29, 11? That's the context. The context is that you would see yourself as born for such a time as this. And there's a great picture that goes along with this, and I love that. It's this. This verse from Isaiah 49, 6 says, and this is God speaking, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, the nations, in other words, that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. If you didn't know, Isaiah 49, 6 is also written to the exiles. And this is an encouragement to them because this is proof that they will recapture the plot of the story. They will recover their purpose even when, and maybe especially when, they are in exile. So I have a little prop right here. Okay, let's see if this works here. Okay, can you turn off the lights? Can you go dark in here, in the back? Thank you. Okay, let me illustrate what's going on in biblical history here. Israel was stationed in, um, sorry, yeah, Israel was stationed in Israel. Well, there we go, that makes sense. Uh, Israel station in Israel. That's very articulate, Braden. Yeah, you're welcome for that insight. Uh, no, God's people were put in Israel on purpose. They were to be like a lighthouse that was a light to the nations around them through their moral life, through their, how they lived, and through their worship to God, the one true God. Now, when they weren't living that way and their light had become dark, that basically become this, well, the plan wasn't working. God was gonna keep the same mission but change the method. Here's what happens. The lighthouse becomes a lamp. Here's what I love about lamps. Lamps are mobile. Lamps affect the environment around them. Where the lamp goes, the light goes. God said, I'm not giving up on my plan. I'm changing course. We are going into the empire. We're going into Babylon. I have a remnant of people who are gonna be there. Daniel and his friends would resemble that. The light's not going out, the light's on the move. My question is, is that how you see your life? Or are you like this? Because God's calling you to be this. Guess what? If you have kids, what your school your kids are at, the sports they're in, are you a light there? At your workplace, it's not just your nine to five. 
It's not just a job that gets you money so you can go on that next vacation. You work with people who need hope. And guess what? The world doesn't offer them any of it. You have something they need, desperately need. Babylon needs you. You have this. You have everything you need to thrive in Babylon. You have everything you need to be contagious. Like people will want this. This is a commodity. Hope is a commodity and it's in scarce supply. You can turn on the lights again, house lights. God's people, we are infused with hope. We are gospel people. We can thrive in Babylon because Babylon doesn't even know it, but Babylon needs us. You're gonna find out in the coming weeks, but uh, I love what happens in Daniel because Babylon does hear about the one true God of Israel. Maybe they would have never heard if the lighthouse didn't become a lamp. Maybe some people you're around would have only heard the ideology of Babylon and never the good news of Jesus if it wasn't for you. Now, I'm excited for the time we live in, but I wanna point you to one verse here as we close. We read Jeremiah 29 and we read Jeremiah 29, 11, but let me say this. If you want a Jeremiah 29, 11 life, you need a Jeremiah 29, 13 heart. You want God to prosper you and give you a future and a hope within exile, all that within context, right? right? This is your play. You wanna know your, your playbook? This is your playbook. According to God's own word, two verses later, you will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. Because like for me, if you can't tell, I'm very optimistic about where things can go. I'm actually not worried about our cultural moment from a church perspective. Uh, I, I'm only worried that the church will use methods that aren't God's methods for us. It's not about church growth strategies. It's not about becoming more attractional or things like that. This is our play. In fact, we're gonna tell you lots of cool things in the next six weeks, even like practical tools to thrive in Babylon. We're gonna get pretty practical with this. But let me say this, disregard all of that. I don't care if you do any of that if you don't do this. Like, I'm serious. I'm so serious about this. Like, I throw out the rest of the playbook if this, if this isn't yours. Seek God with all your heart. It's literally what God tells us to do. But you know what's cool about this is God doesn't say this if he doesn't want to build the expectation that he's gonna show up. If you read about any great revival in history, it's always because people did church and prayed as if God was really there and as if God was really gonna show up. We're in a new and a unique season and I'm excited to you know, be one of your pastors here. This is our play. So I might get boring in terms of telling you that my practical application, and my practical application is you seek God with all your heart. That's our play. But cool thing is he will show up. We worship the same God you read about on the pages of scripture, but our faith has become so dull and weak in America that I fear that we don't even pray with expectation that God's gonna show up and do anything. I'm tired of that. We give him all our heart, he shows up. You wanna know how to thrive in Babylon? That. Wanna know why? Because we need to become really hungry for the presence and power of God. You don't need to know uh, all the tools if you don't have the presence and power of God in your life. You wanna know my personal prediction of why I think it's gonna happen? And I don't know timeline, I'm, I'm not that specific. 
what I think really can happen if God's people get behind this strategy, the Jeremiah 29, 13 heart, is I think we can say a really unique revival that we actually haven't even seen in America ever since America's founding. Personal prediction. What I love about the prediction is it takes personal involvement. We gotta want it. You gotta want that. I wanna close with this uh, thought before we do. We're gonna close with communion, but I just have one more thought for you. There's a pastor in New York named John Tyson, and uh, I, I love John Tyson. I have like a little man crush on him and all that, but he's great. <clears throat> he's got an Australian accent too, so that always helps. Uh, and he's asking someone in this podcast conversation, and he's like, so do you have Sunday services? And the person's like, yeah. And he's like, why? Because we want people to come and have their lives changed by the gospel, you know? Do we have kids ministry? Yeah, why? Because we want kids to come and have their lives changed by the gospel. Do you have prayer? And what John Tyson then says is like, you know, we pray because we want God to come. If you want God to come, you have to do what attracts his heart. This attracts God's heart. When we give ourselves to God, he will show up. That's our play. That's our play today. So we're gonna close with communion, but here's the heartbeat for communion today. We can seek God with all of our heart because he sought us with all of his. If you ever, ever, ever doubt that God has not sought after you, look to the body and blood of Jesus. What more do you need to know? To what extent will God go for his people? The cross. We live in exciting times. We can thrive in Babylon.